All right, peeps. Well, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from Instagram. Lots of gems, lots of vital striking points, lots of internal Wing Chun. Again, let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Kung Fu Genius. Uh, today's episode is like one I did a few weeks back where it's just going to be me. Uh, a couple of you actually commented that you like the episodes with me only, although I find it kind of weird because I'm basically talking to a video camera for about an hour, which is kind of strange. I much prefer conversations with my podcast partners, and I also really like to do interviews because with interviews... I learned stuff, but some of you actually like the version where I just talk more or less uninterrupted. Uh, since you guys said you like it, I'll do it. I'm not a huge fan of listening to myself talk, uh, but that is neither here nor there. I am here to serve our listeners. Uh, so yeah, anyway, uh, real quick before we get started, obviously the best way to support me is on Patreon. You get access to episodes early. You get a fast track to any questions uh, for me to answer on episodes, ask me anything episodes, uh, as well as you have a direct line of communication, different levels of support, also have different goodies, including chat with me on Zoom, so on and so forth, and you get access to my Instagram subscriber reels. So anyway, uh, without any further ado, let's get to it. So uh, about two days ago, I posted uh, in my uh, Instagram, which is at the Kung Fu Genius, uh, if anyone had any questions for me, <coughs> excuse me, to answer on a uh, future episode, and I got a whole bunch uh, so what I decided to do was I had to cut it down because I have way more than I could answer in one episode. So uh, I have a couple questions here. A lot of them are, uh, in my opinion, quite interesting. So uh, let's get to it. All right. So the uh, of course, I have only Instagram handles here, which are uh, sometimes a little more nonsensical than YouTube handles. So if I say them wrong or give them the wrong inflection, uh, my apologies. So what if you could transport back in time for a front row seat into the life and legacy of one of the most respected Wing Chun masters in history? Gong Sao Wong, a tribute, direct students on Sifu Wong Shulung offers you just that. Through a series of exclusive conversations, 25 direct students share anecdotes, reflections, and personal stories offering in-depth understanding of the man behind the legend. Order your copy today across 12 Amazon marketplaces with free shipping. I absolutely love this book, and I think you'll find it an indispensable part of your collection. I can't recommend it enough. Get yours today. Go to Amazon, type in Gong Sao Wong, and there you go. Uh, so I we have on Instagram, proteo.matia. Uh, his response uh, to my my query about questions was, Good morning, Sifu Richter. Should I ask your opinion about internal Wing Chun? Thank you. No, you should not. Okay, next question. Just kidding. Okay. Um, no, I kid a little bit because I've probably uh, brought up... Well, I've brought up this... This topic has come up in multiple ways throughout uh, the podcast. We are now in our third season, in our third year. Uh, which, you know, means we are, you know, into the, er, you know, early 119, 120-something like that episode. Uh, and of all those episodes, the topic of internal Wing Chun has come up. And I have talked about it. And I believe even maybe in season one, <coughs> perhaps season two, I have some episodes where that was the main, let's say, thrust of what I was talking about. 
So, uh, and for those of you who want to go back to see uh, older episodes, especially on YouTube, uh, if you go to the at Kung Fu Genius at the Kung Fu Genius YouTube channel, you will also see that I have some playlists, and I've divided the episodes into the different seasons. So it's a little bit easier to kind of go through because you basically just have to go to through about 52 or 54 episodes per season because sometimes we have some extra ones in there <clears throat> and it's easier to scan it. So if it's not in season one, it's probably in season two. Um, I also wrote an article about uh, called uh, Why Internal Wing Chun Irks Me um, for Wing Chun Illustrated. Uh, Wing Chun Illustrated, as you know, is also a sponsor of this podcast. And check out the link below for uh, some information on how to support our wonderful sponsor, Wing Chun Illustrated, who's been really, really great. Uh, not to mention, they even put me on the cover. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so here we go. So. My opinion about internal Wing Chun. Well, if you saw my episode a couple of weeks ago where I talked about uh, the whole thing about social media, meaning like just because you're on social media or uh, especially if you have a presence, you're, a, you know, in my case, I'm a Wing Chun instructor who has a podcast where I talk about Wing Chun and Bruce Lee and all this stuff. Uh, people are going to ask me everything about this topic. And there are a lot of things in the topic of Wing Chun that I don't particularly care that much about. Uh, and I say that as an absolute fanatic uh, about Wing Chun, especially about Hong Kong Wing Chun, all things Yip Man. Um, they're just certain things that, uh, you know, some people like uh, Italian sports cars, some people prefer British luxury cars, okay? And and so it it's kind of one of those things. So if it ever comes off that what I say sounds somewhat critical of, in this case, internal Wing Chun, uh, you just have to understand, this is only my opinion. And if you yourself practice internal Wing Chun, uh, whatever that means in whatever lineage there now, um, at this point, there are multiple lineages that teach internal Wing Chun, even if they don't specifically call it internal Wing Chun, uh, they might have a different name for it, uh, but it's some kind of internally based uh, approach to the Wing Chun system. If what I say comes off somewhat critical, uh, that is not meant at all to sour your love for internal Wing Chun, if that happens to be what you do. And this is uh, always kind of the opinion, because just because an expert uh, might not like what you do doesn't mean you have to stop doing it or you have to be upset. Um, you should look at different takes on something as just different viewpoints, and you can use your own experience to decide whether you think my viewpoint is valid or someone else's viewpoint is valid. And I would say that goes to anything I say and should go to anything any other experts on YouTube or out there says that you just take it with a grain of salt. This is what so-and-so says. Uh, there are no absolutes. We are dealing with martial arts, which is a very subject subjective topic in and of itself. Not to mention, it has so much to do when you come to a specific martial art. It's like, what is the flavor of that martial art you like? Um, you know, we, we tend to throw things into like a big rubric or a big category like karate, right? Uh, for example, there's so many different styles of karate from Okinawan karate, Japanese karate, full contact karate, American karate, Kempo karate, that it's, um, it almost becomes a, uh, uh, kind of this, uh, parachute term that, uh, can mean so many different things. So you can't really like, uh, say, well, all karate is this, that, or whatever, all Wing Chun is this, that, or whatever. And we're also dealing with, and what most people tend to forget when we have conversations of this nature, 
are we're dealing with for the most part, unless someone is a professional fighter or a bouncer uh, or for whatever reason, their job or their vocation, uh, even being an instructor forces them to have to use the martial art or do the martial art. For most of our listen, listeners out there, I would venture to guess that martial arts, most likely Wing Chun, Jeet Kune Do, or something in that area, is probably just a hobby. So when I give an opinion on internal Wing Chun or a certain lineage of Wing Chun or whatever, I'm basically just giving opinions about what, for the most part, are people's hobbies. So that's another reason why you don't need to take expert opinions seriously, all right? Do you like making, uh, uh, do you like flying airplane, like, you know, remote control airplanes, or do you prefer remote control uh, cars or whatever? I mean, like, you know, to, to get really deep in the weeds and say people who like remote control cars are idiots because obviously remote control airplanes are just so much cooler. Um, it's kind of a ridiculous way to argue anything. So, um, again, these are hobbies, all right? If you like it, you like it, all right? And and I apologize for the long throat clearing or preamble I have to give to this answer, but I feel that I have to do it because if I say anything that sounds critical, people are going to go, ah, oh, you know, the KFG doesn't like it or whatever. Therefore, like, like I'm not into getting into any wars with anyone. And And also what people forget is most people who are online, they have an opinion about other stuff. And there are plenty of people who are very critical about Wing Chun in general, about Chinese martial arts in general. And even within Wing Chun, there are people who are very critical about Tang Wing Chun, which is the lineage that I come from. And it's almost as if you have to listen to all those opinions, be like, yeah, okay, these guys think Wing Chun sucks, or these guys think Chinese martial arts sucks, or these Wing Chun people think Tang Wing Chun sucks. Okay, you have to kind of take it. And then the moment you say something about them, then suddenly they have a problem. And I feel that, well, if we're going to have a discussion about methods or ideas from different perspectives, then if you feel that uh, you are um, in the right to give your opinion about another methodology about wing, of Wing Chun or martial arts, then you shouldn't get butt hurt when someone does it about yours, because then that is a very unfair uh, idea of discourse, like you as a follower of whatever XYZ Wing Chun, feel free to criticize other styles of Wing Chun because you have an idea that yours is better for whatever reasons. But then the moment someone says, well, perhaps there's an issue or there's some things to consider when looking at your style of Wing Chun, they go, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that's politics. Um, you might want to reassess whether you're actually discussing things fairly. As a practitioner of Lerngting Wing Chun, a student of Lerngting for many years, although I'm no longer part of his association, I have a pretty thick skin about cr criticisms of WT, criticisms of Lerngting. Uh, sometimes I find that they're spot on, okay? Uh, uh, sometimes I find that they're highly exaggerated. Sometimes I find that they're, they're criticisms of misrepresentations of WT. But for the most part, I listen to them. I decide whether the source is credible, whether I even need to bother listening to this person or not. And sometimes I find agreement in certain points with people who I generally don't like their style of Wing Chun or whatever. Sometimes you listen to someone who is critical of your point uh, or, crit or opposing your opinion, and you still might find some legitimate points of critique against your style, or at the very least, you can see what the perception of your style is 
for people who don't practice it. And then you can think, why does this perception exist? Is it just that we haven't got the word out there? Is it just, be, is it an argument from ignorance? Um, or is there a legitimate thing that we might not be addressing? And this is a problem in a lot of Chinese martial arts, a traditional martial arts, not just Wing Chun, in that for the most part, we focus on teaching a martial art to our students. We focus on carrying on the proud legacy of our lineage. And when it comes to what we're really doing, most Wing Chun people might say they're teaching some form of self-defense as opposed to uh, street fighting. Because uh, I consider self-defense and street fighting two different things. If you are fighting someone on the street willingly, that's not self-defense. That's street fighting, all right? Self-defense means there is one willing participant, namely the guy who's trying to attack you, and you, as the defender, are the unwilling participant. So that is a, not just a, that, that is really a psychological difference, right? So that's why you can really compartmentalize self-defense as being something different from street fighting. Now, again, as I've said many times before, I'm not one of these sport versus street guys. Um, I have a lot of friends in sport martial arts, and I think most guys who train MMA or sport jiu-jitsu or sport judo or whatever are more than capable of defending themselves. And I've discussed this before. I'm not going to relitigate those arguments there. Um, but, you know, there are few Wing Chun people who actually do sport fighting. There are some people, uh, Sifu Allen Orr, who has a uh, um, who teaches Wing Chun from what I understand, for mixed martial art purposes. Uh, I think he probably also teaches it for people who don't do mixed martial arts as well. And there are a few other people out there who've modified some Wing Chun to be uh, applicable, like in Sanda competitions and so on and so forth. But for the most part, traditional martial arts guys are kind of in their own bubble, okay? And, they're, uh, uh, and, and that's the reason why, since you're not openly going out and fighting other Wing Chun people or other styles, it's very easy to get caught up in the hype of your own presentation of Wing Chun uh, because sometimes the only interaction you might have with Wing Chun people from another style or school are maybe visitors who come to your school and you do a little chi sao or whatever and then, you know, maybe you can show them what's up in chi sao so you're like, yeah, our method is so much better. Um, not knowing that maybe that person's just there to learn something and they're being polite because this is not really an honest test of skills either way. Um, so it's very easy for people to get within the Wing Chun world, whether you're a follower of this lineage or that lineage, no matter how good your lineage is, no matter how proud you are of that lineage, it's very easy to get stuck in the walled garden of your own lineage. Uh, meaning that you are, um, you are in this beautiful garden of Kung Fu, um, but the wall is so high uh, that you don't see outside of your lineage, all right? Uh, you don't see what's going on over that wall. You don't see what other people are doing. And uh, it's very easy to get a very high opinion of yourself. And also the way most, uh, and I'm going to speak from a Wing Chun perspective here, the, the way most Wing Chun people consume Wing Chun content online is they look at, for example, the way someone does the uh, the first form, okay? And they go, oh my God, look at this, all right? Uh, they have their hands here instead of here, or they do it this way, or they do it too hard or too soft, or they don't have the king back, and they don't have this, and they don't have this, and blah, 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 blah. And what they're doing is they are taking their own version, their own lineage, as if that is the one and only prototype, and comparing everything to that. 
And this is a very unscientific way of looking at things. What you have to do if you really want to get an idea of uh, what is the consensus in, let's just say, Hong Kong Yip Man Wing Chun, then you would want to maybe take, this is just my opinion, using some kind of ba basic methods of historical research, you take maybe the forms of a few of the students from, let's say, the early period of Grandmaster Yip Man's teaching, and you take the forms of students that you knew were close to the old man, and you, let's say, you put a video, a couple, you have a couple videos of, let's say, uh, a, a Leung Sung version of Siu Nam Tao, maybe a Lok Yu version of Siu Nam Tao, maybe a Wong Sun Leung version of Siu Nam Tao. Okay, that kind of handles more or less the middle period, or the or early period, sorry. And then for the middle period, maybe you look at Ho Kam Meng, all right, or Mo Yat, and you take their Siu Nam Tao forms. And then for the latter period, you could take, you have a number of different students you could take from, obviously, it sounds very self-serving. I'm going to say Leung Ting, who learned from Yip Man later, but obviously even like his own son, Yip Ching, uh, who had learned in a latter period, and there are other students from that time period as well. Uh, and you would kind of look at these side by side. And then what you're going to see is you're going to see variations in maybe tempo and in rhythm and in details of positions. But what you're going to see is you're going to see what all the similarities are. And what this will allow you to do is it will allow you to see a baseline. Okay. What do most of the students of Yip Man throughout the, his 22 some odd uh, year teaching career, what do they do? Okay. This is the baseline. So then when you look at different Sifus uh, who maybe uh, do things in a radically different way, then what you can say is, okay, this is a deviation from the baseline. Now, this doesn't mean it's right or wrong. You just say, okay, most of the students of Yip Man tend to do their form this way. Uh, and by the way, I would also I would also admit that Sifu Langting also deviates from the baseline in, in certain basics um, from what some of the other guys do. Although having seen some of the Tang Sang footage uh, and reviewed some of the other uh, photos and things of Grandmaster Yip Man, I would say actually on... On balance, Leung Teng's forms don't deviate greatly from what the old man did, but they might deviate a little bit from what some of the other students did. Uh, because I find it all depends on how deep you want to go into the details. That's a topic for another day. But anyway, what you do is you get a baseline, and then maybe you look at Chi Sao, you look at Poon Sao, or you look at the Lap Da Drill, you get a baseline for what that looks like. You can get a baseline for the other forms, for the wooden dummy. And then what you do is you use that as kind of what, in your mind, you would consider standard form, rather than looking at one particular line, which is one individual's interpretation of that material, which is based on their aptitude, their interests, and so on and so forth, you kind of put it somewhat in aggregate as an average. So you go, okay, this is the baseline of what a Siunam Tao form would probably look like in the Yip Man lineage, and so on and so forth. So then what that allows you to do is you can, for example, take someone like William Chow uh, and his Wing Chun forms, and you go, okay, well, he has his own story about why his forms are that way, but you can clearly see if we're looking at statistics, he's an outlier in terms of the way he does stuff. So so if you're looking kind of what is the baseline of what Yip Man taught in 22 years, you could take William Chang out of that equation for a moment because you go, okay, this is different. Now, there may be different reasons to explain that, but we're not going to get a good baseline argument if you throw him into the mix, um, as well as you can even make an argument about 
Lang Ting, or you can make an argument about other Bruce Lee, for example, right? Uh, so when you look at that, you can start to see when you see appending labels to someone's Wing Chun, internal Wing Chun, or in the case of my good friend Wang Kam Leung, practical Wing Chun, or what have you, okay? Then you go, all right, now we're really discussing someone's personal interpretation or not just their interpretation, but perhaps even their development away from the baseline. As I find uh, Sifu Wan Kam is a really good example of that. Um, he's never one to have made a claim that what he's doing is exactly what he learned from his Sifu Wang Zanlang. He's very clear about the version of Wing Chun that he's doing being his... Um, alterations, modifications, and his development based on his own experience uh, as a martial artist, his experience perhaps with Southern Mantis, and obviously his what he learned from his Sifu. Um, what, I, what I really respect about Wan Kamleung in that respect is that he's very apparent and open about it. It's like, yeah, you see, I do things differently because I feel these things are better based on these reasons, and that is his appeal. What I tend to kind of... Mm, raise my eyebrow a little bit is when someone develops their Wing Chun radically away from that baseline, let's assuming that they had learned that baseline first, they develop it radically off that baseline, but then they have a sin of omission in terms of the fact that those are their own developments. They, the sin of omission is like, yeah, well, you see, my Wing Chun is totally different. I do it this way and I do it this way. But there is a subtle implication by a sin of omission that those changes and those modifications that are plain to see are not actually changes and modifications, but rather that's what they learned from their Sifu. In other words, that is their baseline. And so I'm not saying any particular lineage of internal Wing Chun is doing that. I'm just saying that when you look at the different interpretations, you need to have, uh, in my opinion, a baseline approach so you can say, all right, well, these guys are clearly deviating from baseline, uh, which means that this is an, a very different and personal interpretation or development of the source material. And then you go, okay, why did they develop it in this direction? Okay, and then you start to get some answers and those answers give you context why someone might want to go a more internal route or someone might want to go in a more sport fighting route from the baseline or someone might want to just alter the techniques and ideas uh, of how to use those techniques like Sifu Wan Kam Leung. And then, you, then it's very clear why these things exist. What is uh, a little frustrating is when these labels get appended to the Wing Chun style that someone teaches um, with no context, as if, uh, no, the Wing Chun I learned is in fact, let's just put it this internal Wing Chun. That's how I learned it from, let's say, Yip Man, for example, all right? Uh, because then you, then you have a problem of going, well, then how come everyone else didn't learn it this way? And you're either going to have to... To, and that puts that person in a very interesting position because you either have to admit, uh, well, I developed it in that direction, all right? Which means, okay, so this isn't really then from the old man, which is fine. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying admit it if that's what you do. And again, I'm not actually saying this. And I know many people might think that when I'm talking about this, 
I might be discussing Choi Sung Teen's lineage, for example. And I'm not. I'm not even using that as an example. I'm just I'm trying to like create a general, random, broad example. If someone has this as a uh, as a claim, then you either say, "Well, um, I developed it," which is then totally fine. Then you admit to it. You say, "Like, yeah, I mean, these are my interests. I've decided that Wing Chun is best expressed using more internal ideas rather than." external ideas. Okay, fine. Your development, awesome. Uh, where, are your, where are your sources for this information? How did you put it together? And, and how does it work better than the original source material? Or you have to make some kind of admission that, well, I'm the only one who learned this. And then that opens up an entire can of worms because you have now made a claim that you need to substantiate. It's not the goal or uh, necessity of experts to debunk your claims. It's your necessity, your burden as the person making the claim to substantiate it. If you say that you learned a special style of Wing Chun from the old man secretly when no one else was around, well, that's a pretty bold claim. Um, claims require evidence and extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, okay? The bolder the claim, the more accurate and detailed the evidence needs to be, not less. And it seems that sometimes within the martial arts, especially in Chinese martial arts, when you have uh, claims of revealed versions of the style, that is a very bold claim. We're not talking about, uh, uh, okay, well, um, Grandmaster Yip Man taught me 116 moves instead of 108, or uh, Grandmaster Yip Man said the Tanzhou should be this way instead of this way here in this. Then we're, we're discussing little details and variation. When you say whole cloth, the style that you do is different and is based on a different engine idea or whatever. That is more than just a claim on the pinky finger of Tan Sao or whether Pak Sao is just good as an attack or whether it's really viable as a defense. That is a very serious claim and it requires a very serious evidence to back it up. And someone just saying it's true is not enough. So I've gone on now for 25 minutes on a question about internal Wing Chun without actually saying much about internal Wing Chun. Um, but I think what I've discussed thus far is kind of my answer. I'm, I'm very pragmatic. Uh, I believe that, you know, a martial art, if it's to be practical, the answer to deciding whether you can use this art or not, um, the answer is inspiring. Okay, the answer is in okay, and not just Wing Chun versus Wing Chun sparring, and not just Chi Sao. Okay, but like put on gloves. I'll use my Wing Chun, whether it's in a classical sense or in a self defense frame. You can stand in front of me and come at me swinging, or go to tackle me, or put me in a headlock, and I have to use my Wing Chun to handle that. And if you can get me in a takedown, or you're able to get in, or whatever, okay, now we can analyze. Why did I get hit? Why did I get taken down? And then we can improve our skills and our reactions and our methods to stop these things from happening. I feel that that's the answer to combat problems. It's in the training, it's in the sparring, and it's in the analysis afterwards. Um, I don't believe it's in appending labels and claims of secret revealed versions of it in some cases, and in other cases, uh, that the method is so stupendously intelligent and so stupendously uh, erudite and cerebral 
that, you know, simple punches and kicks from some meathead MMA guy simply won't do anything to move your stance. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm, if someone likes internal Wing Chun and they get pleasure from it and they like the community, but it's fine. Just as I would tell students who are training in my own school, you have to enjoy it. That's all part of it, the atmosphere. But I would be very apprehensive about any appending labels being the non plus ultra of this is the solution right here. Um, and then if, if you press me on it, um, although this is not a fair representation of internal Wing Chun, it's just a representation of what is often shown as internal Wing Chun. Uh, there is a, a huge emphasis on not being able to push someone over. And while, of course, we want to be able to stand in a way where when we hit someone, we don't just go flying backwards, right? Uh, or we can find an angle or, or a position where our structure will allow us to affect our opponent. So ideas like structure and proper position and said, these are things that are important. But the idea that um, by virtue of aligning certain things, by virtue of creating a representation in my mind of where my energy is moving or spiraling and how I take that force or give it out. Uh, the idea that that is going to be viable when someone is trying to smash your face with their fists, okay? When someone just grabs you. I live in New York City, okay? And sometimes you sit on the subway and some dudes will get on the subway big, strong, and scary, and you just go... Yeah, you're going to stand in front of that guy and tell him to push your arm. That guy's going to run right through you and turn you into a flattened bug on the other side of this subway train. So I go, you know, it's not realistic to think that because I can stand there and I put my arm out and then I have a student push my arm and I, can, and I root myself into the floor, okay? I don't know a single Wing Chun Sifu, including Wing Chun Sifus from non-internal styles that can't do some version of those demonstrations. I stand there, I put out my arm, a student pushes my arm, I can put that into the floor, I can even stand on one leg. You can put two or three guys back there pushing and then I stand there and I go, oh, look at how you can't move my stance. I can teach most of these parlor tricks in a pretty short time to anyone who is relatively physically capable, even if they don't know that much Wing Chun. I, I did an experiment uh, where I uh, taught this to some friends of mine who don't practice martial arts. I said, okay, I want to teach you a couple tricks to make it look like I'm going to push full power and I'm actually going to push full power on your arm, but I'm going to show you like how to stand, how, how to do this, how to manage it. And then I'm going to push and I'm really going to push in earnest and you're going to be able to stand there. And I can show these tricks in a relatively short time and get someone who's just decent physically but doesn't even have any martial arts experience and basically get them to mimic some of these immovable stance tricks that some people use. And therein lies the point. It's like if, if it's just a parlor trick and the parlor trick works specifically for this, it's like... Uh, we've all seen the uh, Napoleon Dynamite, right? Where they go to the Rex Kwando school and it's like, grab my wrist, all right? No, with your other hand. No, no, grab my other hand. No, no, the other one, right? And it's, it's always the, uh, uh, you gotta 
attack me exactly the way you do it. Or the classic Jim Carrey skit from In Living Color, where he plays like the self-defense instructor, right? And every time he goes to show something, he gets his butt kicked. And at the end, he, you know, he, he wants to show knife defense and then he gets slashed, you know, by, by the one of the ladies doing the class. And then he says, like most beginners, you attacked me wrong. You're supposed to leave your arm out straight and go like this, right? And I just feel that like a lot of these immovable stance demonstrations are kind of the Wing Chun version of that. Like, I'm going to show you how you can't move me at all. No, no, no. You don't get to decide how to push me. I want you to like put your hand on my arm. Okay, now push as hard as you want. All right. Or you put your hand on my chest. Okay, ready, go. It's, it's always the guy doing the demonstration that has to establish the parameters and the rules of engagement by which the other person is allowed to push or pull or do whatever. And in New York, we say, this is pissing on my leg and telling me that it's raining. Okay, so while I think demonstrations of structural stability and stance are totally good, and I, you can also find me sometimes showing my students, look, if, I, if you stand this way, you do it like this, you can stand stable, all right? But I don't use that particular explanation of a transitory moment in a stance to then say, now, therefore, anyone can rush at me and I'm just going to stand there and be able to take it or shuck their force off without having to move. Um, my only, and, and again, this might not be an accurate representation of what internal Wing Chun people teach, but it seems to be relatively fair to what is shown on, online. It's always a demonstration of um, push my arm here, try to pull me here, try to do this thing to me from this specific situation. And all of these are fine if you're demonstrating a specific thing, but these are not uh, examples of overall world-changing uh, general martial arts skills that can be applied all the time. And my my last thing, and I've said this before, I always feel like, you know, for some of the newer listeners, maybe this is interesting. For some of the older listeners, I know uh, you've heard all my well-worn arguments about this. I, uh, I'm always a little concerned with making a virtue out of standing in one place. Okay. While it's super cool to be stable, we need to be stable, whether you're a grappler or a striker or whatever in transitions, you need to stand stably. You need to know how to take angles and go where you're strong against where your opponent is weak. I'm all for that. But the idea that you're just going to stand there and no one can move you and you can just make little subtle alterations, move someone around, that stuff works in moments. It doesn't always work as a general principle. And the easy way to show this is, uh, for one, we've never seen someone do that specifically in ring fighting, okay? There are examples of successful Wing Chun people in the ring or successful Chinese martial artists, and for the most part, they move. I have not seen uh, a Chinese martial arts guy go in the ring and someone come at them clobbering and they just ab somehow absorb the power in the stance, stay there, and then, I don't know, blast the guy out of the ring or whatever, which... or as you would see in these demos, blasting people over couches and pushing people over couches. I just feel like um, it's fun. It sometimes takes advantage of the credulity of martial arts students when they're there with their master. Um, it's very easy as a martial arts instructor to get kind of sucked into that feeling, that echo chamber of your own students lobbing softballs or at least lobbing things at you that they know you can handle. Um, but 
if you just put the average person who believes that they can stand in the ring motionless and take all this power and just put someone else in their weight class with two boxing gloves on coming at them windmilling i would assume either that guy who thinks he can stand there is going to get knocked out or they're going to suddenly decide maybe i should move and we need to make a virtue out of footwork and angles and movement and sticking in an intelligent way not just trying to brute force through everything but really using footwork so um not a fan of standing in the same place and that might be a straw man argument of what internal Wing Chun is for the people who claim that. But when I look at it online, it just looks like people are trying to justify standing in one place. And um, good luck with that when the dude really wants to kill you. So many people are confused about basics in Wing Chun Chi Sao. Some view it as a collection of moves and masters confuse their own students by talking of principles and concepts without telling them what's what. The 15 Chi Sao Fundamentals is my attempt at explaining Wing Chun Chi Sao from a perspective of principles, but also with the basic techniques required to express those principles. It shows the framework for Hong Kong Wing Chun Chi Sao, in particular, the training of Pun Sao and Lap Da. This is necessary training before going on to the higher and more spontaneous expression of Chisao. Right now, if you use the code KFG Chisao, you can get a signed copy of my book for the price of the unsigned one. Click on the link in the description below and use the code KFG Chisao at checkout to get a signed copy of this full color, over 230 page manual on the vital foundational training exercise of Wing Chun. This offer is good while supplies last, so get yours today. All right. Next question. All right. Uh, this I can tell from the Instagram handle is actually one of our students from our Brooklyn branch uh, at Brooklyn Wing Chun. Um, and this is Mel's De Loked D1. All right. Sorry if I butchered uh, your uh, handle there, uh, Mel. Uh, what are some recommended recovery exercises to do when getting back into Wing Chun? Um, well, it, this is... Um, a little difficult to answer because, uh, one, I'm not a trained medical professional. So you always have to be mindful when getting any kind of medical advice from someone who is, in fact, not a medical professional. So this is my caveat and my warning as a completely non-trained, untrained in medicine professional. All right. Although I did two first aid courses with CPR. So that um, if that gives you any idea of the framework of the knowledge that is my medical training. Um, but obviously, I've been teaching Wing Chun for over 20 years. I've been doing martial arts for much longer. And I know something about getting back into training, having had many students who are out for a little bit, um, who uh, had an injury and then had to come back. And there are a few ways to kind of tackle this. Um, the question is a little, um, a little confusing for me because it says recovery exercises. Um, which uh, could be recovering from an injury. Um, so it's like, okay, well, if there's a specific injury, then um, I, it would be easier to know what that injury is uh, to give some idea of a framework of maybe some, you know, generally well-accepted methodologies to improve these things. Um, but then it says when getting back into Wing Chun. So I don't know if the recovery is for a specific injury or ailment that you need to recover from and uh or if the recovery is from you're getting back into wing chun and since you've been out of training you're like ugh, out of wind or you're sore or whatever after the training so i don't know what the recovery is from if you're still recovering from an injury then i would suggest not getting back into training right away if you still have an injury if you're talking about recovering from the actual training 
Uh, well, that's much easier. When you get back into training after a long layoff, we have to pace ourselves, all right? And this is very difficult for those of us who have been doing this for a long time. Because if you've been doing, in this case, Wing Chun for a few years, then you know what your baseline is when you're in good shape. You know how hard you can punch the bag, how long you can go uh, doing, you know, kind of wing, maybe Wing Chun-based sparring training. You know what your gas tank feels like after an hour and a half class, hour and 15 minute class. Uh, if it's really hard training, you're kind of used to it when you're training regularly. When you're out of it for a little bit, your muscular endurance goes down and your cardio goes down if you've not been training cardio. So when you get back into training, our mind is like, yeah, in an hour and 15 or an hour and a half class, I can usually do this many punches and go this hard with these partners or whatever. But what you forget is if you've been out for a month or two, uh, your muscular endurance has gone down and your cardio has gone down. So what you're doing is you're comparing yourself to a version of yourself that you are not currently at right now. So it's very, and this I would say is the same exact thing when even just getting back to a gym, getting back to a fitness routine or getting back into a martial arts routine. It's always better to get back in a little bit lighter, a little bit easier, and then see how you feel after that first class and go, Actually, I feel okay. I don't feel super taxed. And then you use that as a baseline to know how hard you can maybe go the next time you come back. So you go just a little bit harder. You go incrementally harder. It's better than you go back and you go, you know, full power back in your first class after having a long layoff. And then you're like sore and tired and really recovering afterwards because you mistakenly thought of yourself as the version of you that you were before you had your layoff. So uh, my simple advice would be take it easy. And I know it, it always sounds kind of trite. What do you, you take it easy? But the thing is, this is the same question, no matter how it's packaged. Um, martial arts students always want some hack. All right. Well, you know, if you just do sauna uh, after every class, and then you use, uh, you know, your Diclan effect gel to to this and blah, blah, and then you, you do it this way and you follow this five-step exercise after every class, then you will be indestructible no matter how hard you train. And this is not the case. First of all, these things are super individual. Individual to your physiology, individual to your previous training. What level were you at before? Uh, the better your fitness level was before, the easier it is usually to rebound to a previous level of fitness. But you need to still, you need to respect the rebound up there and take it slowly and then curve back up slowly like this. You just got to take it easy. And it's better to go too easy. And then go, okay, well, I don't feel tired. I've been out for two months. I went super easy on my first class back. Uh, I feel fine. Then take that as an indication. Okay, well, you can bump it up a little bit for the next class. Not, okay, well, that's an indication I can go back to my regular uh, level of intensity. No, not at all. Um, you still need to scale it up slowly like this. And if you went really easy and after your first class, you were like, oh, man, I'm exhausted. Then go, okay, well, then you need to take it easier. Um the other thing that I think never really gets properly addressed in these questions is rest. And by rest, I mean actual sleep. Uh, you, you can read all the sleep studies. 
Um, there are some, some great books out there. Uh, Joe Rogan did a podcast with a sleep expert. I don't remember his name. I read his book. I think his last name was Walker. So if you Google sleep, I think Walker, some kind of Dr. Walker, whatever, it's probably one of the best books you'll ever read about sleep. And when you read that, it'll scare the piss out of you to make sure that you get enough sleep. And again, it sounds trite because people want gadgets. They want doodads. They want the rattan ring that's going to fix their chi cell problems instead of just doing chi cell, fixing it that way and listening to your damn seafood. They want the doodads. Uh, someone said something funny the other day because, you know, I'm always championing what a useless piece of shit that ring is, um, you know, pressing sideways instead of forward. And it's just it's just a thing that looks cool in Kung Fu. People like their cool contraptions. But again, the answer should be in partner work and inspiring, just like my previous question. Put away the stupid toys and gimmicks and just do the hard work. Do the Kung Fu. Someone um, commented, I think it's on my YouTube, and I apologize for not knowing the, the name of the person, the handle or whatever. It's been like a week or whatever. But if you're listening, you know, kudos. You gave a great analogy. Um, on one of my videos where I'm kind of trashing the ring, someone said, yeah, this reminded him, uh, I believe, and I'm paraphrasing here, of all those gadgets you can buy at Sharper Image. Uh, which are supposedly meant to like improve your golf swing, for example. Now, I don't know shit about golf, right? But you go to a store like Sharper Image that sells doodads and gimmicks, and they're like, you know, uh, you, you put this thing on your arm or whatever, and this will totally train your golf swing to be perfect or whatever, right? And then you can go down this rabbit hole of all these gimmicky hacks to get good at the thing, when in reality, the best way to get good at something is to do it for massive amounts of reps, preferably under expert guidance and regular uh, revision and improvement over time, rather than looking for the silver bullets of recovery. Now, different people might have their own silver bullet. They're like, well, no matter how hard my training is, if I just take a hot bath and do this and this at night, I feel fine the next time. That's an individual thing, but there's rarely a kind of one size fits all for that. So um, I know I meandered a bit on that one, but I hope you found something helpful in that uh, nonsense. Uh, I just spewed for the last 10 minutes. Okay. So here we go. Uh, noble wolf underscore 007 in Wing Chun. What are the vital body points you should be taught to strike first and second? Um, this is a great question. Um, it has a little bit of a trap door in the term vital points. Um, because, uh, within Chinese martial arts and traditional martial arts, there's kind of a whole idea or a whole body of knowledge of things on one end, like dim mak, you know, certain points that if you pre press or squeeze, uh, that you can disable your opponent or you can put them out or, um, the most extreme versions of that include time charts, um, different times of the day. If you strike these points in this order or whatever, and we've all seen the movies, uh, you'll disable someone or perhaps even kill them or delay kill them, you know, a la David Carradine um, and his masturbation. Sorry, and the five point exploding palm heart technique. Um, you know, uh, there's there's like a whole bunch of hooey nonsense when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I've talked about this before, why I think kind of dim mock is BS, um, besides the fact that, bro, prove it. Where's the dim mock expert going in there into UFC and just hitting points or whatever, and then these people can't fight. And the moment I say that, Dimak apologizes, well, you know, you got the glove, and you got, and it doesn't work. There's always an excuse why it doesn't work um, in lieu of any evidence that this thing has ever actually worked except against 
uh, credulous students who are standing there, right? Every uh, Last time I had a big rant about this stuff, I got a whole bunch of guys in the YouTube comments sending me videos of guys doing these strikes and the other person, you know, falling down or whatever. And the joke is, name me one person who has a decent strike, who can't knock someone out, who's just standing there, all right? Sometimes these things were like, hit the guy in the neck and the guy fell down. Well, dude, average person who hit someone on the neck, we've all seen that video of the... There's uh, two soldiers in the army or whatever. The one army soldier standing there and the other guy just gives him a freaking good old Austin Powers judo chop to the neck. Unresponding. He just stands there and takes it and the guy knocks out. Yeah, no kidding. All right. Is this Dimmock or is this just the brain shutting off after some kind of trauma and hitting someone far away, especially someone who's not resisting for me is not a, uh, 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 demonstration of anything some people got really upset about that because you know it's the no true scotsman fallacy i'm a kung fu guy but i don't believe in that hooey bullshit and then of course oh you do it's because you haven't seen it bro all right i'm going to hong kong for the 27th time this year okay since i was 18 all right i've been to china i live in new york where we have all sorts of chinese martial arts experts i've seen all this stuff much of this stuff i've seen live okay my opinion is not coming from, oh, I just haven't seen it. Maybe I haven't seen your guy yet, but I guarantee you I've seen a guy like your guy already, and I just don't find it convincing. Plus, where where's the evidence that these guys can hit people like this and stop them? One video was really funny, though. A guy showed me like a vital point where hit the guy here and the guy went rolling over, and the dude he took was like some guy from the audience. And the guy that he took was like someone who wait. It was like... It was like a hipster from Brooklyn uh, who weighed like 120 pounds soaking wet and had skinny jeans that were slightly sagging. Man, if your pants are half pulled down, I'm sure a lot of people can knock you over, right? And these things, these are not evidence. We, we need, show me that some guy is at a bar pushing and going, hey, and this, you see the whole monkey dance escalation. And the other guy just goes, Boop, and that guy goes, I want to see that and not that he cracked him one but that he gave him the boop, and then that guy falls down okay uh in lieu of that i'm sorry so that's my kind of spiel on dimmak kind of time plus i also made another uh, um a reference that you know if there are so many random striking points on us that could disable us cause internal injury or whatever then i'm of the opinion that uh, massage therapists would be constantly convicted of injuring their clients by accidentally hitting these dimmock points in the think of how many people get a massage every day just in in your country if it's america or whatever think of how many people get that think of how many people are getting pressed in all these positions transitory think of how many times to use another example you bumped your elbow into something really hard or you bumped your the side of your head so, the, the possibility that you would accidentally bump one of these dangerous points or get pressed into one of these dangerous points uh, by a massage therapist accidentally and then you're dead or you're severely injured would be highly probable. Statistically, it would make sense that this would be highly probable. Why aren't people dying en masse after massages? Why aren't people dying en masse from accidentally bumping their Yang Meridian point against the door when they opened it too quickly? All right. So that's my spiel on Dimmock. And that's why whenever I hear the term vital points, I go, OK, before I discuss where's a better place to hit someone and not a great place to hit someone, I need to have a throat clearing about all this bullshit about 
this, okay? Yeah, you can grab someone and squeeze. Is that a vital point? No, that's you choking them, all right? You put your thumb in their eye. Is that a vital point? No, that's you literally gouging someone's eye, okay? All right, so let's not equate that to something mystical based on yang and yin meridians, okay? Um, and that's what I have to say about that. When you use a striking art, and it doesn't matter if it's Wing Chun or boxing, okay? There are places you can hit someone which are not going to cause a lot of damage, and there are other places you hit someone which are going to have more of an effect. So what I would think about is, what are the more effective targets to hit? Now, striking opens up a whole can of worms, all right? Uh, so... Obviously, we're talking about balling up our fists and hitting someone, which is a pretty brutal thing. And if you're going to do that, you got to kind of be ready for the consequences, right? Uh, there are obviously more vulnerable areas to hit with a, with a punch. The throat, okay? The side of the jaw, the temple, the bridge of the nose, all right? couple other places, but they're all some variations of side of the neck, a variation somewhere in between, right? Hitting someone on the forehead, not a great idea. Hitting someone on the top of the head, not a great idea. Hitting someone in the back of the head, not a great idea. So you kind of think like a ninja mask, the eyes and the bridge of the nose, all right? Eyes, all right? This point here in the jaw where a lot of knockouts happen, okay? The mouth you generally want to avoid because the teeth are very are very hard and very sharp. And if you ever punch someone square on the teeth, you can cause a lot of damage, but it also does not feel great, especially if you're not wearing a glove. Since we're talking about self-defense, we're assuming you're not wearing a glove. Once you got big gloves on, okay, that, that broadens the area of trauma uh, that you can go for. When you don't have gloves on, you probably want to be a little bit more precise. Bridge of the nose, right over the eye knockout point here, um, jaw, uh, um, side of the neck, throat here, right? And some of those can cause some serious damage. So you have to be responsible if you're going to do that. The level of your response to someone's attack has to be commensurate to the way they're attacking you. And if you listen to some self-defense experts, they would say your level of response has to maybe be slightly above what's coming at you because if you don't use enough or serious enough of a response, you could actually be putting yourself in danger. So um, I would think about hitting vulnerable targets with your fists or your elbows or your kicks rather than uh, secret vital points, okay? Um, the problem with this is that um, you need to have a, uh, a vocabulary of those places to hit. Like I just named a bunch of places on the face, here, 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 uh, here, here, all right? Uh, those are all fine. And the reason why you need to have a few of those is because your opponent is not going to stand there and let you punch them in the face. So if I said it's specifically, the, I was making this up, it's specifically this point. If you hit someone there, their brain will explode inside their skull. And if you hit them right here, uh, they will, uh, you know, lose control of their bodily functions or whatever. Okay, let's say, for example, that there are these two hyper-specific points on the face that would cause like all sorts of irreparable mortal damage, okay? All right, well now your opponent's standing in front of you and they're moving and they're grabbing you and they're also coming at you with stuff. Good luck trying to get those two hyper-specific points in the middle of someone grabbing you and trying to headbutt you and elbow you and all this. Yeah, 
go for those two points, all right? And then if you listen to some Kung Fu guys that say you have to then use super specific ways of striking those points, yeah, good luck forming your hands in these really specific mudra looking like positions and catching two very specific points against a moving opponent who's just coming at you like he, like a berserker, okay? So we need to think about hitting vulnerable spots with our fists, with our elbows, with our kicks, with our knees, with our striking tools, having good clinching ability to slow the pace of a fight down when we can't get a clean shot in, and then being able to apply a mix of these skills flexibly against a um, moving and resisting opponents, okay? Um, and that would be um, my idea. And this is also why at City Wing Chun, I don't teach people specific nonsense like this, because even if it were true, which I would posit it's not, um, good luck trying to get those things when your opponent is not just standing in front of you. Um, okay, uh, next question, underscore J-W-H-O-O, -O. so J-W-H-O-O. Uh, do you have or know any school or dojo storming stories? Um, I know a bunch of them. Um, usually when we answer questions on the podcast, Dre picks the questions at random and then asks me, and then so oftentimes I'm answering these things on the spot. Occasionally, I will screen some of the questions just to be like, okay, well, this might be the better question to ask first or whatever. So I, I didn't think about it too much, but I kind of do know the questions that are coming at me. I just screenshotted most of the favorite ones I saw on Instagram really quick. And then I think I didn't actually notice that I put this one in here. <clears throat> Had I known this one was in here, I would maybe would have taken a, a minute or two to think about it because I know a lot of these stories. Um, but whenever you tell these stories, you need to be mindful of, um, is it appropriate for me to tell this story? Like, um, or can I tell this story and maybe not reveal the name of who it was? But even if I do that, well, then people know. And then people get upset with me about talking about this stuff. Um, so, um, I'm going to, I'm, I, I might have to come back to this one because I really don't want to piss off any of my colleagues in the Chinese martial arts world. Uh, my, uh, you know, my school, uh, AKA dojo, uh, has not been stormed. Um, really, I mean, every once in a while you have someone, not so much in, in the last 10 years, really, um, because I think most troublemakers nowadays uh, are not going to kung fu schools anymore. They, maybe they just join MMA schools, um, and that's not throwing shade at MMA guys or anything. Um, you know, sometimes people came for intro lessons, and they have an ulterior motive, and you know, it's teaching them or showing them something and they try something in an intro lesson, you know, they try to test you or grab you or whatever, right? But I wouldn't consider these things fights and I wouldn't consider these things dojo storms. Um, there are some stories of things in New York that got kind of heated. Um, I have talked about some of those things. So I don't want to repeat those stories. I know some stories about things that happened in Europe. There's some unfortunate incidences that uh, I don't really want to bring too much light to because... Um, yeah, these things are kind of funny in movies and interesting or whatever. But in real life, um, we're basically talking about people showing up and con committing some kind of mass assault on a private business. And so uh, as a business owner, I, I, I don't necessarily want to condone these kind of stories because um, 
these can sometimes have disastrous results. Uh, in the 1980s, at kind of the height of the Wing Chun Wars, which were not just Lang Teng versus uh, William Chang. It was kind of every man for themselves at that point. Um, there are a few stories uh, where severe injury or even death happened. And, you know, uh, these things are not nearly as romantic as one would think. Um, obviously, uh, the question here was posed, do I know any school slash dojo storming stories? So obviously, um, this Instagram uh, user knows that, you know, Chinese martial arts schools are not called dojos. Um, and uh, so I understand that and I see that very much here. But I just wanted to say this because most of most of my listeners are probably in the know about these kind of things. But just to kind of remind people that, you know, if someone calls a Chinese martial arts school a dojo, um, try to correct them, not in a pissy way. Actually, Chinese men are not dojo, because it's not, it's not say dojo suck because they're not Chinese Kung Fu. It's just a matter of uh, correct technical terminology. Um, you know, do, uh, it's actually do chang in Cantonese. Do chang is like, uh, chang means like a field or a place and do is the way. So when you hear the Japanese word for a martial arts school, it has a decidedly much more philosophical tone. It's like a field or place or area where the way is trained. So it has a much deeper philosophical root to it, um, which is perhaps one of the reasons why Okinawan or Japanese-based martial arts, which are based on the cultures that they came from, will bow to the hall or to the room as they entered because they revere the hall as um, perhaps something holy, although that might not be the best word, but it's an approximation. It's, it's a holy place or a revered place or a place to be respected because this is where we train the way. Um, whereas in Chinese martial arts, it's usually called mokun, which just means a, a martial place, a place where martial arts are developed. Sometimes there's, you know, like the way where the fist is studied, right? Or uh, athletic association, right? So uh, there, there are different ways of using it in Chinese. Uh, for the most part in Chinese martial arts, um, because a lot of the Chinese terminology, especially in Cantonese, is difficult for Westerners to pronounce. So um, I would implore most Western-based Chinese or non-Chinese martial arts instructors just call their school a school rather than trying to, um, you know, phoneticize it because the the pronunciation is not going to be accurate. Some, uh, I know in Germany, some Wing Chun guys call their schools like a Kuhn, K-W-O-O-N. And that is um, an awful approximation to the Cantonese. Um, if you tried to say it to an actual Cantonese speaker, Kuhn, this is my Kuhn. Um, you'd be unintelligible uh, unless they spoke English and they knew that this is some wacky thing Westerners call Chinese martial arts schools or you were able to contextualize it, like this is what it's called like oh good <laughs> good not kun right so um, yeah uh, I would just be a little mindful about um, using uh, your version of Chinese gibberish to name your school just call it a school all right all right so we have another question here which is a great question, um, and the last one that I will tackle today. Um, Fernando Nunez underscore PY on Instagram. Do you know something about the Lim Long style that uh, Leung Teng talks about in one of his books? Um, yeah, so this is... Um, 
This is a question that is about historicity of the Wing Chun style. Um, uh, interestingly enough, historicity is something that I'm now, I get in these, so anyone who knows me personally knows this. Uh, so for those of you out there who are like in my circle, I apologize. You, I'm preaching, you definitely know this about me. And, and uh, for those of you who don't, I get really sucked into um, rabbit holes. Um, even if it's not directly related to Wing Chun or Chinese martial arts, although it often is, or it has some tangential relationship to Chinese martial arts um, or Wing Chun. And right now I'm in like uh, a historicity rabbit hole. And uh, the reason I'm in this rabbit hole is because um, I have some like pet side interests that I'm in. And one of the things that um, I've been interested in lately is like um, history of religions. All right. Now, I don't believe in any religion or superstition or anything like that. Um, but I find the interesting, uh, I find the history of these religions very interesting, how they developed, how they were disseminated, um, how modern scholars can even know what's true about the nature of the, his the texts and who wrote them and how were they edited or re-edited or forged and all this kind of stuff. Because I think that historians who do religious, te uh, uh, research on religious texts probably have the hardest job in history because you're dealing with things that are emotionally charged. You're dealing with things that are most likely just created by people in the area and where were their sources and how did this come together? So uh, I've been following a lot of like uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, Dr. Richard Carrier, like these biblical scholars, and I don't have any skin in the game when it comes to this stuff. But um, even among non-believing biblical scholars, people who don't actually believe in the Christian religion or whatever, uh, there's still argument as to whether Jesus was like a real person who walked the earth and then all this stuff got made up about him afterwards or whether he's entirely mythical. Now, um, I, I tend to believe he's probably mostly just mythical, but that doesn't matter. And if you believe otherwise, you don't need to write in the comments because I literally don't care um, because this is not even uh, this is not my thing. I'm the Kung Fu genius. But what I like to do is watch these guys kind of go back and forth and argue their points. And as I'm listening to this, I'm going, oh, wait a minute. We have the same problem in Chinese martial arts. Um, we have the problem with the history of the Shaolin Temple, which is mired in superstitious nonsense, um, you know, Buddhist scriptures and Chinese versions of these scriptures, which have absolutely no historical um, fact. There's, there's nothing in there that can be attested to. Uh, Bodhidharma as a figure himself and as the founder of Zen Buddhism or someone who brought Zen Buddhism to Shaolin Temple is already a very problematic claim, um, as are the fact that there's actually a resurrection story about Bodhidharma. There are other claims that, you know, that are basically fairy tales, things that defy physics. He meditated in, in a cave for so long that his image was imprinted on the rock of the wall across from where he meditated. This is stuff, this even makes sense in terms of science. But these are things that get no pushback, even among scholars. And so uh, I, a few weeks ago, talked about like the Wing Chun myth being kind of BS. And uh, by the way, I just wrote an article about this for the upcoming Wing Chun Illustrated issue. Uh, this this time I wrote about Shaolin. Uh, the next edition, I'll, I'll use those same arguments and then uh, put them against uh, our own Wing Chun mythological nonsense. And um, I started to realize while watching these biblical scholars kind of um, argue about, does this text, is this text supposed to be 
literal? Is it supposed to be allegorical? Is it made up whole cloth? Is it just a forgery of something? And if it's a forgery, what is it a forgery of? So on and so forth. Um, I started to go, wow, uh, no one has really gone to that level in Chinese martial arts, uh, whether it's Wing Chun specifically or um, the history of Shaolin. And then, of course, people in the comments said, oh, you got to read Mir Shahar's book on the Shaolin Monastery, which I had kind of glanced at a while ago. Um, but I decided to read uh, Peter Lorge's highly readable um, Chinese martial arts, which I found a very a scholarly and objective take on Chinese martial arts. Um, so, But everyone's like, oh, no, you got to read the Mir Shahar book or whatever. And look, I'm not a historian. And as a non-historian, as a layman, uh, we cannot, you know, even experts have to rely on other experts outside of their field. An expert in biology um, might have done some physics in university, but they can't really say if they're going to make a claim about physics, they have to make a claim based on what experts in physics have said. So me as a layman, yes, I've been teaching martial arts for 20 years. I've been doing martial arts since I was eight. That doesn't make me a martial arts historian. And it also doesn't make your Sifu a martial arts historian either. And I would be very skeptical of anyone who claims to be a Wing Chun historian who doesn't have an actual degree in history. If you don't have a degree in history or in a specific topic, I'm sorry, you can't say you're a historian. You can say you're a Wing Chun Sifu that has an above average interest in the history of your style. But when you actually look at the methods of people who are putting out history of Chinese martial arts there, they're not using textbook historical, like you can go and take history 101 and take just one or two years of history classes in a university or a college. And you would automatically see none of these Wing Chun historians are applying any of the basic Wing uh, history 101 methodologies to what they are claiming as actual truth in the history of Wing Chun. So these are all very unscientific and un very unacademic approaches to uh, Wing Chun history. And Mir Shahar is a historian from what I can tell. So I'm like, okay, this is the, this is the best history of Shaolin, the Shaolin Monastery. And I started reading. I'm not done yet, so I do have to reserve judgment. But what I've seen so far, it just seems to be a book that quotes the other sources which is fine. That's what most academic books do. But there's no context uh, from what I've seen so far. Uh, there'll be times where he says, yeah, and then they moved the this, this supposed rock with Bodhidharma's image was maybe moved from here to here or whatever. And then he just he quotes that because that's what some ancient text said. But there's no like, wait a minute, we're literally talking about a rock that someone meditated in front of for so long that they're image is imprinted on a rock this wouldn't even be the case if it was an actual mirror in front of him okay stand in front of a mirror all you want and walk away and tell me if that image of you is still there this is ridiculous because this is a claim that defies science and we're somehow meant to believe that in a pre-scientific age with no evidence no attestations that this unbelievably extraordinary fairy tale sounding nonsense was true because it's written in a book. So what I've seen so far is it's, it's, it's rehashing a lot of like the mythology of the Shaolin Temple, perhaps with more sourcing than others, but there's no historical context in terms of like, well, so you just believe it because someone else wrote it in a book? Like, where's the pushback? Where's the 
contextual analysis. Where's the textual analysis of this stuff? So I'm not done. Maybe in some chapters. So I will eat my words if that is the case. I say this openly. If I, after I'm halfway, so it's very, un, it's admittedly very unfair for me to say anything about the book right now. But just from what I've seen so far, um, I'm going like, okay, you're just saying the myths, but, uh, and he even says that these things are myths, but then in the next paragraph says something that's wholly implausible uh, and then just goes on without saying anything about it. It's like, you know, it's as if a zombie walked into this room right now, stood behind me while I'm having this podcast, looked at me, uh, flicked my earlobe and then walked out and we're just going to go, well, that just happened and then not say anything about it. All right. Um, could that have happened? Was that a camera trick? Was that someone in disguise? Are we not going to mention the elephant in the room? Or are we just going to say that is what it is? Did an actual zombie come and do it? Right. Uh, it's um, it's a little strange. So. Um, Siva Langting is not a historian either. And my, and I'm from the Langting lineage. You have to be very suspicious of people who make claims, uh, not of the people themselves, of their claims, I'm saying, when they represent a specific lineage, okay? Uh, how many times have we seen Wing Chun historians find a lineage of Wing Chun? Uh, heretofore, never before seen version of Wing Chun that happens to usually be the most authentic to the original source material, as if the most authentic and original one is the best, as if somehow Queen's, Queen's Rules Boxing is better boxing than modern boxing because it's the original one, right? So okay, even if something was the most original thing, doesn't mean it's better. It just might mean that it's, an interest, it's interesting historically to see where it came from, how the development came. But the claim that just because it's the original one, original doesn't automatically mean better. Tell me where original in any type of technology or science or body of knowledge is the best one, okay? Is the original version of medicine better than modern medicine? Is the original version of a car better than a modern car? Is the original version of a plane better than the modern jets? No. Why does Chinese martial arts get a pass that the original one is better for fighting in the 21st century when it was designed in another century with other types of opponents, other methods of battle in mind? It's absurd. How many times do we see a historian that discovers a lineage of Wing Chun, to keep it in my wheelhouse, that's most original and better than everything else? And by the way, you can buy it from me for $10,000. All right. Only to then find another style a year later and go, yeah, that was good. But now I got this one here. You have to be really mindful. Now, in the case of Leung Tang, um, he met in the 70s a Thai instructor named Santa Surpastrapong, who's teaching in Berlin and is a Thai boxer, but also has some uh, knowledge uh, of traditional Thai martial arts. So not just Muay Thai but some of maybe the weapons-based stuff, I think, and some of the other more traditional stuff that looks a little bit more like Chinese martial arts because the northern part of Thailand, which borders with Western China, and we have a number of martial arts that come from Western China, there's definitely some crossover there, right? Um, but we have to be very careful with confirmation bias, right? Um, you know, uh, Siva Langting going like, oh, well, you know, there's this flying monkey style that has external Hun Sao's and has things that vaguely resemble what we do in Wing Chun. Ergo, it must be related to Wing Chun. Well, lots of styles have circling hands. 
And that doesn't mean necessarily that it came from Wing Chun. It might, but not necessarily. And his big thing was like, okay, well, they have this cross movement in there, which looks like the most advanced movement in the last set of the Bacham Do. Therefore, there must be something there where historically that doesn't really make sense. The knives seem to have developed much later in the history of Wing Chun to tie it to the early Western, potential early Western Chinese development of Wing Chun, where the knife stuff probably came much later in the Red Boat era or maybe even in Hong Kong. And then how does that relate to the Western China potential Hermes version of it, if that's even true? So there's a lot of problem there. And, you know, when you look at styles that have forms, Forms usually, especially if they have a lot of forms, you're going to see a huge vocabulary of movements. It's super easy to take any style that has two, three, four, ten forms and see movements and go, oh, look, that looks like Wing Chun. Okay. Oh, look, that looks like traditional karate. Oh, look, that looks like uh, Hong Kun. You know, oh, oh, look, that looks like uh, Thai boxing or whatever. Ergo, that must be the antecedent predecessor of the style. And it's like, look, we, like Bruce Lee said, we have two arms and two legs. Okay. How many different ways can you move and in the course of transitions and stuff like that look exactly like you're doing some other style that you're not doing or never even learned? So I don't think it's true. Um, I did at some point, obviously, when I was very entrenched in the Langton world, but then you spend a little bit of time. And as I have lately, reading how history should be studied. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be doing a course next month. I'm not me teaching. I'm going to take a course next month on how to do history. All right. Like, how do you assess texts and facts and things and events as being true or accurate or even probable? Because I want to start applying this to to these his, actual scientific historical uh, research methods to topics like Bruce Lee, Wing Chun, Chinese martial arts, Shaolin, and see if I can maybe come up with some better answers. Or at the very least, if I come up with no answers, just go, well, at least I know this is BS. I might not have a suitable replacement. But I can tell you that this hypothesis is probably bullshit. And I think that's fine. Which leaves me with the last thing before we get out of here. If someone has a good method of determining whether something is real or fake, they might say, okay, based on the evidence, on balance of evidence, I think this proposition, this uh, suggestion, this claim is not true. That person doesn't have to have a replacement theory for that. And this is where people get upset. If I say, I don't think the Bodhidharma story is true. I think it's uh, mostly fabricated, so on and so forth. Yeah, well, how did the Sheldon Temple develop Kung Fu or whatever, right? Um, I don't know. Well, see, well, you don't... The fact that I don't know something doesn't mean that I can't use logic and proven scientific research methods to determine whether a story is false. Determining if a story is false doesn't automatically mean you have to replace it with something else. I might not know, and truthfully, you don't know either. So when someone tells you, I don't know, but based on balance of evidence, I think this is improbable. Um, that's a pretty, provided that their methods for coming up to that are sound, that's a very scientifically honest thing to say. And the fact that someone doesn't have a replacement theory doesn't mean that they're wrong. Most people would rather believe a conspiracy theory than no theory at all. Most people are like, well, they have to have an opinion on the history of Wing Chun. No, you don't. All right. Are you a historian? Have you read text? Do you read Chinese? Do you Have you read Qing Dynasty era books and histories? No. Then you probably are not qualified to discuss that. 
And that's fine. Do you like Wing Chun? Do you think it's good? Do you practice it? Are you good at it? Great. Do you know how it originated? No, I don't either. Neither do you. And that's fine. We can let real experts figure this out. You can be agnostic and say, well, I think that Moy story uh, with Yim Wing Chun and, and the bandits and the fight learning in the mountains for one year and then fighting whatever is probably fake. Oh, yeah. Well, then how did it form? Oh, well, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. No, no, no. This is not an argument, okay? Not knowing something is different from being able to reasonably say something is not true. And we need to be uh, as laymen, as people who just do martial arts, cognizant of this. Your Sivu is not a historian. I'm not a historian. And their Sivu, your Sigong, your Sivu Sivu is probably not a historian. Yip Man was not a historian. The fact that he wrote the history down in Chinese is just him. It's just a re-recitation of hearsay. Okay, that's not a that's not a real historical document. Okay, Yip Man's written history of Wing Chun is not a historical document. It's him just reciting hearsay. It's as if you had a transcript of this podcast. All right, um, it's just a transcript of what I said for an hour. It's not a transcript of anything uh, that can be proven scientifically about internal Wing Chun, for example. Okay, so anyway. That's all I got to say about that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the Kung Fu Genius, hit that bell for notifications. And if you have any questions you want me to answer on a future episode of the podcast, go ahead, write in the comments below. And by the way, we have like a week or two maybe left of signing up for the Hong Kong tour. Uh, we're pretty much booked up, but if one or two of you stragglers want to come in, do that right away. Information is below, uh, but we're more or less booked. But if you're a nice guy, I might make an exception for you. Anyway, see you guys next time. Take care. Word is I'm a kung fu genius. Technique speaks for me, not lineage. Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one. Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seagung. And I produce masters. You surpassed us. Your kung fu stiffer than corpse and caskets. City Wing Chung is the house I built. Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt. Alex Richter, always the victor.